Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Advent begins today and so begins a season of some of our favorite hymns and songs. How can we find new meaning in words we have already sung so many times? Join us for our new sermon series, Waiting for Messiah, and the message, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. You know, Advent begins today, and this is the season where we wait for the coming of the Christ child, and it'll be the next four Sundays until sundown on December 24th. And as part of Advent, we're going to be starting our new sermon series, Waiting for Messiah. And so how can we find new meaning then in some of these wonderful Advent hymns and songs that we have been singing now for years? How can we find new meaning in those words? So stay tuned then for our coming message, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And now for our scripture reading, we'll be coming from Psalms 137, verses 1 through 4, and Isaiah 11, verses 1 through the 3a and verses 6 through 9. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall play its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. On the day that the Babylonians breached the walls of Jerusalem, the people of Judah watched as not only the walls, but every detail and every facet of their lives came crashing down, forever destroyed. Their city had been besieged for three years, and nothing remained for the people to eat. And they'd already grown so desperate that they had eaten things that, while it may have kept their bodies alive, it made their minds a place of madness. As was the custom for the Babylonians, they forced a large segment of the population to go into exile. You see, if you destroy their homes and their communities and their livelihoods, people tend to become very docile. They they become incapable of rebellion. Other conquered peoples then would be moved into their former homes, also rendering them incapable of rebellion. As the people of Judah were led out of the city to endure a 1,200-mile death march to Babylon, they passed fields of dead and rotting bodies laying there, unburied in the hot Middle Eastern sun. It is thought that Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones, of the valley of the dry bones, was based on what the people saw 
on that day when they were marched out of the city of Jerusalem. Many died on their way there. And those that survived were expected to set up these new lives in Babylon. Yet the exile was catastrophically traumatic on the people of Judah. So how do you set up a new community when every single person who is part of that community is suffering from post-traumatic stress? Well, the psalmist painted a picture of what it was like, and Kim read it earlier. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps, or there our captors asked us for songs. Uh, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You see, in the eyes of ancient peoples, they assumed that when they were away from their own land, then they were cut off from their own gods. And if they were defeated in war, they imagined that their gods had been defeated by their enemies' gods. And so the Jews wondered if the Lord had come with them into exile or if they were forever banished from God's presence since they, now they were no longer in the land of Israel. And they even pondered the possibility that the Lord had been defeated by the Babylonian high, high god Marduk. But they had no choice but to start new lives in this new land and with their children in this foreign land. So they built new homes and they started new businesses and they slowly began to perceive that perhaps the Lord had not deserted them and that somehow the presence of God had made it with them into this distant foreign land. So in response to their new circumstances, they decided to write down their story. And it was during the exile and the time thereafter when the Jews began to write and to edit the books of the Hebrew Scriptures, books that would eventually become what we know of as the Old Testament. Now included in these Hebrew Scriptures is, again, the psalm that Kim read earlier. And it's a psalm, or really a song, really, about the Jews' difficulty in singing songs in a foreign land. So they wrote a song about being too sad to sing songs. And in singing a song about being too sad to sing songs, they began to heal. And as they healed, then they found new songs to sing, new songs to rejoice in the reality that the God of Israel had not abandoned them to exile and despair. Now, I think music, perhaps more than any other art form, it really marks the times of our lives. If you're like me, you can hear a certain song and suddenly you are transported back to your youth or maybe even your childhood. There's some songs I hear those first few chords of a particular song and I'm right back there in my old college dorm room listening to vinyl LPs while following along with the words that are printed on the album liner. Well, the church knows this very well as we have developed an extensive catalog of hymnody throughout our history. And this is not any more true than it is of the hymns that we sing during the seasons of Advent and Christmas. So during the four weeks of Advent this year, we're going to be exploring the hymns of Advent and Christmas. Now, up till a few days ago, 
I had an entirely different sermon series planned for Advent. But then I came across a book on Advent hymns, and I changed my mind then and there. I think it was Wednesday. And I thought, you know, we've hired this new minister of worship who comes with this extensive knowledge of sacred music and who's injecting new life into our music and the worship life of this congregation. So let's do a sermon series on the hymns of the season. And either this, or this coming week or the next week, we haven't decided which, but we'll be hearing our first sermon from our new minister of worship, the Reverend Dr. Garth Baker Fletcher. And so the sermon series that I had planned, we'll just save it for another year. Now the word Advent is taken from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. So the season of Advent is the first season of the Christian liturgical year, and it covers the four Sundays prior to Christmas. And it begins on that fourth Sunday before Christmas, which would be today. And then it lasts until sundown on December 24th, Christmas Eve, after which then the formal season of Christmas begins. And in Advent, we prepare for and celebrate all the ways that Christ comes to us. Now, in Advent, we're always thinking of the ways, uh, particularly of the way that Christ comes to us uh, in, the, in the form of the Christ child on Christmas morning, and then the gift of Jesus' earthly ministry and life. But Advent means more than that. You see, we also are preparing and celebrating all the ways that Christ still comes to us. Because Christ still comes to us through the word read and proclaimed and sung through the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion, through the presence and the peace of the Holy Spirit, and through our communion with the body of Christ and in the church and in our Christian fam uh, friends and family. And finally, we prepare and celebrate for the time when Christ will come again in final victory. History will come to an end and creation will reach its final consummation. The hymns of both Advent and Christmas are typically very positive, they're uplifting, they're upbeat, they're very expectant. But the very premier Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is an exception. Yet it has always been my favorite Advent hymn. Even as a young child, I found the music just to be haunting. It has this kind of melancholy sadness in the tune that, that it moved me even as a child, it moved me very deeply, even if I didn't fully understand the words or really have an understanding of why it had this effect on me. So my love for this hymn then later motivated me to explore the deeper symbolism and the biblical motifs that are behind the original 9th century Latin words. In its original form, the verses of the hymn were chanted, chanted as antiphons during monastic worship an antiphon being a short chant that's sung before or after a psalm or a canticle. And the particular antiphons that eventually became the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, were sung in medieval monasteries during the seven days prior to Christmas Eve. And they all began with the word O. And so the great O's, as they were sometimes called, they focused attention on the upcoming incarnation of the Son of God through motifs found in the Hebrew Scriptures what we now call the Old Testament. Now, the familiar translation of the first verse that we find in our hymnal, our United Methodist hymnal, reads, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Now, you may want to 
during this sermon. Uh, it's, it's hymn 211, so if you want to make reference to the words and be looking at the words as we talk about them, they're right there in the hymnals in front of you. The first verse refers to then the exile of the people of Judah by the Babylonians then that I referred to at the beginning of the sermon. The beginning of the exile, the Jews felt only despair as they lacked the motivation to sing any of the Lord's songs now in a foreign land. Now though we'll probably, hopefully, never know the actual pain of being in exile, nevertheless there are times in our personal and communal lives where we feel disjointed or dislocated. And we certainly felt this way during the worst of the COVID pandemic. For a time, we literally and physically were cut off from our loved ones and cut off from our church family. And it was painful. In fact, we're still reluctant to return to the same level of physical touch that we previously enjoyed with our friends and family. And while it never reached the level that the exiled Judeans would know, we too, in a way, suffered a kind of a collective trauma. We too, for a time, lay captive in lonely exile where we were confined to our homes. And so we had to have faith that God would be with us. For that's what Emmanuel means, God with us. There are other times in our lives when we have no conscious feeling of God's presence. Hopefully these times don't come that often, but they do come. And in those times, we may or may not still believe intellectually that God exists and God is there. But the reality is in those times that if God is there, then God seems to be silent. We feel or sense or hear nothing. It reminds me of another other well-known choral piece uh, written in 2011 by the Norwegian composer Kim Andre Arneson. It's titled, Even When He is Silent. And it's based on a poem that goes like this. I believe in the sun even when it is not shining. I believe in love even when I do not feel it. I believe in God even when he is silent. You may have heard this poem before. It's usually identified as being found etched uh, in the wall at the Auschwitz concentration camp. Now, the exact words of the poem differ from which form you, you may read or see, and there is actually considerable debate about the actual origin of this poem. But I do think that its popularity is due to the fact that people, the po excuse me, the poem speaks to the lived reality that we sometimes have as people of faith. Because sometimes we don't hear or see or feel God's presence. And sometimes we find ourselves mired in depression or despair. But just as we have experienced both the sun and experienced human love, even when sometimes they are absent, we know that with experience they will return. And likewise, we have faith that God is still there and that once again we will be able to feel that presence, that divine presence in due time. The hymn then of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel speaks to this same sort of faith. Though we feel lonely in our exile, we have faith that Emmanuel, God, is with us. And the experience of that presence will come to us again once more. I would love to go over all seven verses of this hymn in detail, because I love this hymn so much. But I did want to, we can't do that, but I did want to uh, point specifically to uh, the third verse. Uh, 
Because I think the third verse is going to sound familiar, uh, well, to all of us who have sung this, but also to those of us who have been part of the pastor's Bible study as we have been reading through the Torah. And uh, again, the text is in, is in United Methodist Hymnal 211, but this third verse goes like this. O come, O come, great Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times once gave the law in cloud and majesty and awe. You see, we've been studying how the Ten Commandments and then the rest of the law was revealed to Moses and the Hebrews over a one-year period as they camped at the foot of Mount Sinai after their escape from Egypt and, and, and slavery. And as they camped there, the Lord's presence was made known to them in this pillar of cloud that would rest on the tent of meeting, also called the tabernacle, which served as their portable sanctuary. It was their sanctuary there at the foot of Sinai, and then would also then be their portable sanctuary as they spent the next 40 years wandering in the desert until they could make their way to the promised land. It reminds me of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which we had a sermon series on a, uh, a few months ago. Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, we don't always appreciate that Jesus was so firmly rooted in the Jewish faith in which he was raised. But the thing is, we cannot separate the revelation of God on both Mount Sinai and in the incarnation of the Son of God in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is thoroughly Jewish. And when anti-Semitism rears its ugly head, we must remember that when we participate in anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish bigotry, then we are participating in the oppression of Jesus' family. The fourth verse is related to the text that Kim read from the prophet Isaiah. O come, thou root of Jesse's tree, an ensign of thy people be. Before thee rulers silent fall, all peoples on thy mercy call. So compare that hymn verse, that third verse, with the first verses from Isaiah about the, the hymn uh, verse, O come thou root of Jesse's tree. And then Isaiah saying, A shoot shall come. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So you may be asking, who is Jesse, and why would a shoot grow out of his roots? Well, Jesse was the father of the Old Testament biblical King David. And so the family tree of Jesse is sometimes a visual motif that we will find in art or sometimes in icons, sometimes in stained glass. And so that would make Jesse then an ancestor of Jesus. And the genealogies of Jesus found in the Gospels of both Matthew and Luke list Jesse and David and their royal descendants as part of Jesus' lineage. And Jesus is often referred to as the son of David, making him part of then the royal line and therefore an eligible king of Israel. In fact, it was a claim to the Jewish throne through which, for which the Romans executed Jesus. Earlier on the morning of his death, Jesus had been mocked by the soldiers who saluted him and hailed him as the king of the Jews. 
Over his cross, there was a sign that said, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And in Latin, the first letters of the phrase, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is I-N-R-I. And this is why you so often see the initials I-N-R-I over the head of Jesus in artistic depictions of the crucifixion. As we can see, each of the verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel make reference to motifs that are found in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so throughout Advent, we're going to be using a different verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel as a kind of antiphon for the lighting of our Advent wreath and in its liturgy each week. And each verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel ends with this refrain. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And we should rejoice, because Emmanuel shall come again to us, ransoming us from despair and exile in a world that is so often racked with pain. So come, Emmanuel, and then let us all rejoice. Amen. And now let us, with the confidence that we have as children of God, pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Continue to be praying for Trinity. Continue to be praying and thanking God for three things every day. Continue to pray for the coming of Emmanuel. And now receive this benediction. May Emmanuel ransom us from our lonely exile so that we can rejoice again in peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue our sermon series, Waiting for Messiah, as we explore the hymns of Advent and Christmas. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.